Good morning and welcome everybody. You're listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM, 87.6, 87.8 or 88, right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network, wherever you are, positively different radio in the morning. You are with Lyle and... Minnie. Minnie, how are you this morning? Oh yeah, I'm ticking along. It's Monday morning. You know, it's always that thing when you've just had a weekend and you're like, oh yeah, work's tomorrow. What about you? How are you feeling this morning? Oh, absolutely Amazing. Hey, that's good. What did you get up to over the weekend? Okay, so we just finished a new uh, room, another room on on uh, our house. Okay. So we and we moved in on on uh, Sunday. Yay! Night. It was like it was one of those projects. Was like we are going to move in this Sunday. <laughs> we, we are, are going to finish. <laughs> we're going to finish this room, and uh, the closer we got to it, you know, the more things that sort of happened, as the, as as always happens, because you kind of look at it and you think, oh, yeah, we'll have this finished like on Wednesday, mm-hmm. and then it was Thursday, and then it was Friday, <laughs> and then Shell was painting it on Saturday night, and then painting it again on Sunday morning, and we had the fan going and the windows open <laughs> to try and get the paint to dry out, and so we could, uh, you know, by after lunch we were hanging blinds and cleaning windows, and then by the evening as the sun was going down, we were moving in furniture and setting things up, and we now have a living room. Haven't had a living room for a while. Hey, there we go. So we have a we have a bedroom and a living room. So (laughs) you know, and a bathroom. Oh, that's handy. Yeah. All of those are quite we, nice. We are, we are making progress. It's nice to have plumbing. A bathroom, I find, is a pretty essential one for being in a house. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's good. So you're yeah. thankful for being in a new room. Super thankful for being in a new room. Yeah, hard out. Yeah. I spent a lot of my time yesterday weeding. I actually had many other things to do, but I just like put in an audio book and I was Minnie. just ticking away. Hey. Why didn't you not come and visit us? Um, I don't, we sorry? Have, we have lots of weeding to oh. do. Our garden is out of control. I know. <laughs> Wait, but that's thing so is our garden. <laughs> our garden hasn't been weeded for like a month and it is summertime. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Very good. So let's have some uh, positively different news this morning, Minnie. Yeah, let's do that, shall we? Okay, so our first story today, I don't know if you guys have heard of Stephen Curry. He is a basketball player, um, apparently a very good basketball player. I don't follow basketball, but I do know that name. And his wife, Aisha? Aisha. I don't know how to pronounce her name, but they have been quietly providing uh, 15 million meals over the course of the pandemic in the US. 15 million. Yeah. So Stephen Curry is in the NBA. Apparently he's one of the greatest shooters in NBA history, uh, treated a little bit as basketball royalty, but he's also very generous supporter of charities lifting up people in need. So last summer in the US, as the COVID pandemic was stalled uh, stall the economy, leaving many out of work, he and his wife uh, launched Eat, Learn, Play, a foundation to help families struggling to put food on the tables uh, through donations to the Alameda County Community Food Bank and the Oakland, California school system. So they, I don't know if they have kids who are at school or anything, but that that's their kind of key focus is like eat. Okay, so we need to have our kids who are getting enough meals to get the nutrition to kind of move forward. When they heard that the Oakland school was shutting down, they had some concerns because they're like, you know, for some of these kids, that's where they're getting two meals a day. They're not getting going to be getting enough food. Um, what I love that they've done with it is they have a, this is the problem and this is what we're doing about it. So those three focuses, they're going, okay, well, why do we feel like the food thing is important? Okay, well, why do we think the learn thing is important? And so they also talked about, um, yeah, the education side of things, it's 
I think they said there's only like 14% of people get into college or something in that area. And so they're saying they've noticed that there's this trend where if people can increase in their literacy early on, you know, um, often by fourth grade you have quite a big gap and by then it's really hard to close. It can be done, but it's difficult. And so they're going, well, you know, let's try find ways to get kids what they need earlier. Um, and, yeah, and so that's a focus. And then obviously with play, he's a basketball player, but they're also trying to be able to give kids opportunities for summer camps and different social activities, uh, which maybe would be difficult to have access to otherwise. And, uh, yeah, I just think it's cool that you have someone who – oh. My phone is totally starting to play that video, which I didn't want to play. Um, (laughs) uh, And yeah, and so I think it's cool that you have someone who is a well-known person, I guess, who is going, I don't need to be noticed for this, but I do want to take responsibility and do something with what I can do, you know, because he's got a bit more access to resources than maybe someone else does. And he kind of said, we know the world is changing before our eyes in terms of dealing with the spread of coronavirus. And we just found out that the Oakland Unified School District is closing the doors. This was back back when, for the seeable future. So we want to intercede on behalf of the kids that rely on the daily services and try to help in any way we can. The initiative since then has expanded exponentially. They've joined forces with world-renowned chef. I don't know this guy, but apparently he's world-renowned. Jose Andreas, founder of the non-profit disaster relief group called World Central Kitchen. And so that helped them go from serving 4,000 meals a week to 300,000 meals a week. Oh, that's a big jump. It's pretty significant. And more than just serving meals, it's also given the local economy a much-needed financial shot in the arm, about $20 million, uh, because it's allowed them to rehire more than 900 restaurant workers. Um, yeah, because they were hit pretty hard with the COVID lockdowns. Oh, yeah. Probably and one of the hardest hit sectors of the community. Mm. And so, yeah, I just think well done them for making a difference in as many areas as possible. This is something I was talking to some people from my church group about the other day. Sometimes you can see so much need around you, but you're like, I don't even know where to start. And I think I'm having to realise more and more you start with the one thing, <laughs> where you are with what you can do. And then you go from there, you know. A wise person once said, do what lies nearest. Oh. That was actually an Ellen White quote. That's, uh, so yeah. she, she was a lady who uh, lived in this area actually, right here in the uh, Newcastle um, uh, Lake Macquarie area for quite a number of years back in the 1800s, late 1800s. Mm. She just said, do what lies, ne- lies nearest. Mm. When You know, if you're wondering what call God has on your life, Start by doing what lies nearest. Mm, that's good. And that's what these guys have done. And I, I, it's, you know, one of those formulas that sort of never fails. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, there's another story I have. Uh, I just find this quite interesting. So it was a struggling Thai fisherman and he has found a rare Milo pearl that's worth about $320,000 just while walking on the beach. I'm not saying this is going to happen for everyone, obviously. That's not a bad effort. <laughs> it's not. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce his name, so I don't want to try. But he was picking up Hatchi? Hatchai. Anyway, he's a fisherman. He was walking. He was picking up oyster shells with his family, and they stumbled across these beautiful shells that were discarded um, near a boy ball. And I was like, oh, well, you know, let's just pick them up and have a look at them as you do. You're at the beach. Um, anyway, he, he's 37 years old, and he and his bro- brother picked up the shells and took them home. They gave them to their father, Angmad, and then asked for a little help with the cleaning. 
When the pensioner had opened the third shell, he found an orange pearl slightly bigger than a US quarter. I don't know specifically how big that is. Is that like smaller than a 20 cent piece or bigger? It's about the uh, maybe yes, yeah, a tad smaller than twenty cent yeah. piece. That is a massive pearl. Oh, that's that is a massive <laughs> pearl. That's enormous. How long had that thing been growing for? I wonder. Oh, I don't know, but it's pretty solid. Anyway, so obviously he called his wife and his boys to inspect it because you're like, wow. Also, it's orange, and that's kind of cool. Uh, it turned out that the fishing family had found, as I said, this extremely expensive pearl. And he had spotted the shell. Uh, he says he had a strange dream a few days before finding the ge- uh, before finding the gem of an old white man with a long moustache who told him to come to the beach so he can receive the gift. And he, he says it led him to find the pearl. Uh, he believes that the old man could be a deity who wanted to help him get out of poverty. Now, whether that's true or not, I'm not going to speculate into hey, the dreams and stuff. You just can't argue with those kind of things because you weren't there. And, you know, maybe God wanted him to be out of poverty. Maybe God has a plan for him to mm. do something wonderful with this particular. Who knows? We can't. Who knows? That's something we can't judge. That's right. But I actually do think it's quite incredible. And it just, you know, we know the story from the Bible about the pearl of great price. And it just made me think straight of that story because this is literally in our world, a pearl of great price, you know, that you just kind of stumble upon. How much did they say that thing was worth again? 320000 Just for one pearl. That's phenomenal, isn't that's, it? Yeah, that's super significant. It did say the size, but I forgot to check yeah, what it's, it's... massive. Yeah, but 7.6 grams. I don't know. For a pearl, that's... Yeah, the easiest way to describe it is a little bit smaller than a 20-cent piece. Significant. Just a tad smaller than 20. That's, that's, that's yeah. a decent <laughs> size pearl. <laughs> Fantastic stuff. This is Tim Moore with Come Go With Me. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Got for us news today, Law. We're talking about Denmark, is that right? Yes, we're going to talk about Denmark. So, well, before we talk about Denmark, we need to talk about Australia and we need to give ourselves a little bit of context. You know, we can all remember back to 2017 when we had the same-sex marriage plebiscite. And at that particular time, we were told, you know, there was a lot of people who felt very uneasy about it because they had looked around the world and seen that people had gone down that path, had continued down that path, and that it had become a slippery slope that ended up in restrictions on religious liberty and religious persecution. And so there are a lot of people here in Australia, myself included, who said, well, it's unreasonable to expect that Australia would not go down that same slippery slope. Mm. And, of course, it's constructive to look back from where we are now and to look forward to where we're going in the future. So if we look at where we are now, we're a number of years down the track from, uh, what are we, four years down the track from uh, the same-sex marriage vote. And now we have situations like those in Victoria where certain kinds of prayer are outlawed and certain types of Christian counselling are outlawed. And even if you, you know, even if somebody from Victoria was to call me and say, hey, can you pray for me over... You know, I'm struggling with gender dysphoria. Can you pray for me about this? Then I could go to jail even though I don't live in Victoria and I could get a 10-year sentence for doing that. You know, that's a massive, massive restriction on 
religious liberty. And it's not based on science. There's no science behind it whatsoever at all, not a shred of scientific evidence that uh, backs up what they are actually legislating for in Victoria. There are similar legislations in South Australia and Queensland. It's coming, of course, to New South Wales probably sooner rather than later, and it's going to work its way around our country here. And so that's where we are now. You know, everybody said it wouldn't be a slippery slope. It has been a slippery slope. We are following other countries that have gone down the same path with anti-conversion bills. And it's interesting to look at a country that is five years ahead of us. Mm -hmm. So Denmark, um, they brought their same-sex marriage uh, legislation through five years ahead of Australia. And where have they now reached? Because the legislation doesn't stop with, you know, banning certain forms of prayer. So this is the legislation that is now being debated in the uh, Denmark uh, parliament, and that is that all sermons must be written. So no more preaching extemporaneously, no more preaching from skeleton notes. All sermons must be written. Now, that's going to be a massive workload for some preachers. Oh, yeah. Not only must they be written, but they must be, if in a different language, translated into Danish and then all submitted to the government before they are preached. I thought that would be coming next when you said that. I was like, yeah, they're going to have to go somewhere. Yep. Um, and so basically this is, you know, intimidation, censorship, uh, blatant attack on religion. It's like, well, if you don't, you know, preach the woke common narrative, then, you know, there's going to be severe consequences for that. And, um, and it's designed to supposedly curb religious indoctrination. What are they saying that actually is? Well, they're worried about extremism. Right. Okay, so something like um, what has been, you know, legislated in Victoria, you know, where somebody says, well, if you are, you know, you know if you're born biologically male, then you are a male Regardless of what your brain says, that's what you are, to make that kind of a statement would be seen as religious indoctrination and extremism, even though it's scientific. Have This is coming even to play based on Even though it's based on science, not ideology and not religion, you can't no longer preach it because of the religion of secularism. How, um, how is this going down in churches currently? Okay, so yeah, good question. The um, let me see here. Da, 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 da. So Robert Innes, who's uh, the Church of England bishop for Europe, said that other countries will follow. Mm. He's spoken very strongly against it, and it's like, well, this is just a start. Other countries are going to follow with this. Um, he has pointed out, you know, not all preachers use notes, and not all preachers in Denmark preach in. Danish, Danish or even speak Danish. There's a lot of, you know, just here there's a there's a uh, Spanish church that meets in this building that we're in right now. Mm. Uh, there's lots of those kinds of churches. And for many preachers, Danish is their second language. 90, he's also pointed out that 90% of communication is nonverbal and so not all your idiom and nuance uh, can be translated. Mm. And he's pointed out that people for whom Danish is a second language you know, conversational Danish is very, very different from theological Danish. Yeah. You know, it's one thing to have a conversation in Danish. It's altogether another to be able to present a sermon or a Bible study in Danish. Um, and, of course, the Lutheran churches come out and said this is going to create great harm. 
uh, to Denmark's reputation? Well, I'm not sure that it will actually in today's woke world. Um, but he's, he said that the legislation in and of itself, just the fact that the legislation exists, automatically places all religion under suspicion. Mm. And he's dead right. But then he, he goes on to, uh, to look at the workload. So you've got sermons, you, you know, what happens in a church. You've got your weekly sermon, you've got baptisms, you've got funerals, you've got weddings, you've got midweek meetings, you've got campaigns, you've got weekend series, you've got uh, prayer meetings, you've got small groups, you've got your Sabbath or Sunday school, depending on, you know, which day of the week that you worship on, um, which all have to be translated. And for an ethnic church, that workload is just an impossibility. It just was, closes the church. I was going to say, for some people, just even if it's your native language, that's a big workload. Oh, do you know? Like, I don't preach, but uh, like, but when I have, this, I'm all this, about the this dot would, point. This would just about bring my my ministry to <laughs> an end because, yeah, I preach from skeleton notes yeah. or extemporaneously if it's a subject that I know really well. Mm-hmm. I have never in my no, I shouldn't say never in my life. I have never since the age of seventeen written out a sermon. Word for word, mm-hmm. and read it from up the front. Mm-hmm. And okay, that works for some preachers. For other preachers, a read sermon when you sit there and listen to it, it's just like, well, you know, I could have read the book. Mm-hmm. I came here to hear a sermon, not to hear somebody. You know, some people pull it off well, some don't. I'm one of those ones who don't. You know, writing a sermon out stops you from waffling. Yes, which is a good thing. Yeah. Um. And, you know, those of us who speak from skeleton notes have to know our material better to avoid that. But, you know, this is, this, is, uh, this, is, this is where our world is heading. So, you know, if you look at France, France is four years ahead of us on the same-sex marriage issue. So Denmark is five years ahead. So this gives us a, you know, a, a glimpse into five years into the future from now. Mm. Um, France, which is four years ahead of us, they're debating legislation now that will ban parents from homeschooling. There's about 50,000 homeschoolers in France. And ensure or legislate that all children must be in school. We talked about this last week. By the age of three to protect them from religious indoctrination by their parents. And that's because of both of these countries are afraid of... Uh, the same kinds of things that Victoria and South Australia and Queensland are afraid of being presented in churches. There are a number of things in the Bible that speak against, you know, homosexual acts. And they are afraid that you might read those in church. There are a number of verses in the Bible that speak about other things as sins that they would say, well, that is not a sin. There is no law against it. And so therefore you should not call it a sin because we do not see the harm that it creates. Mm. Now, I will say this. Nothing that the Bible says is a sin does God say um, arbitrarily because everything that God says is a sin is because it is protecting us from harm. Across the board, universally, that everything is for that purpose. And so... You know, when you put this all into where we are right now, it's just like, yeah, this is where we're heading. Welcome to, you know, to the the twenty twenties. Welcome to the twenty twenties. This is the this is the future, and we should be speaking up about these issues. You're listening to the Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM, positively different. 
Well, joining us on the phone this morning is Martin Isles from the Australian Christian Lobby. Martin, welcome to the show. Good morning, Lyle. It's good to be with you. Yes, fantastic. Martin, I want to take up a, uh, a subject today, which is, I just want to say at the outset, this is a sensitive subject, and uh, we're going to talk about abortion and particularly what's happening in South Australia. And I just want to recognise that there are a lot of people in our world, both men and women, who have made decisions in the past that they regret and others who have made decisions that they may not regret right now but may regret in the future and that we want to be sensitive while we talk about this but at the same time we want to speak very, very plainly about what is happening in the world. If there are those who are feeling badly about uh, the, the subject of abortion and if it you know, is triggering um, you know, um, you know, some, some rough feelings, emotions and so forth, give us a call or give Lifeline a call. Um, don't hold back and, and uh, don't deal with those yourself. But uh, Martin, coming to the subject of abortion, uh, this is an issue that is starting to hot up in South Australia. Can you give us a brief rundown of what is happening there? Yeah, sure. And I agree with you, Lyle. It's a, it's a fairly heavy subject, but we have to you know, speak the truth on it. And um, especially in light of all the medical developments and what we've come to know about particularly late-term abortion in recent times, which is what the South Australian situation is all about. So in South Australia, abortion is legal, as it is around the nation, up to, however, a certain limit. Um, and they decided some years ago that the limit was 28 weeks. So a woman can't seek an abortion in South Australia if the baby is more than 28 weeks old, which uh, to my mind is pretty fair enough because babies at that age can feel pain. Um, babies at that age are completely viable outside the womb uh, and can live perfectly healthy lives if born. Uh, and uh, and they are babies that are got beating hearts and they've got you know all their own um, human parts and features and they make facial expressions and yawn and stretch and do all of these things you know they're little babies and so there's always been that protection in South Australian law however mirroring the eastern states um, South Australia has decided to make a move to um, legalise abortion all the way up to and including the point of birth with effectively effectively no limit. So you need to get two doctors to sign off, but that's extremely easy to do. Uh, it's not really a, a bar at all. And so they want to abort, legalise abortion up to and including the day of birth. The big political battle is on. There's lots of lobbying taking place. There's been a massive walk for life. There's been a huge outpouring of concern. And here we are now looking at a situation where perhaps, perhaps the proponents of that bill will snatch defeat from the jaws of victory and, in fact, late-term abortion may be banned in South Australia once again. Now, when we talk about abortion up to birth, surely, surely we're talking about only under the, you know, that surely there must be something in the legislation that, that, that says that this can only take place under the most extreme uh, medical emergencies for the purpose of, you know, saving the life of the mother. Well, that's what would seem reasonable. Uh, unfortunately, the legislation says nothing of the sort. The legislation uh, makes it pretty much fully available to anybody, even for psychosocial reasons, even for economic reasons, even for reasons of gender selection. Uh, so, you know, one of the very sad practices in modern times is that girls are aborted at a far higher rate than boys because they're girls. Uh, and there have been reports of late-term gender selection abortions uh, in neighbouring states, and uh, that would still be permitted under this particular legislation. 
And it's a widespread practice once it's legislated, which boggles my mind because it's a very, very messy and very, very cruel procedure uh, at that stage. For example, in Victoria, I was looking at some statistics uh, and you're getting about 300 plus, sometimes 350 late-term abortions a year. Uh, and a number of those, usually a few dozen, and this is quite heavy. You were talking about heavy stuff, but hey, this is the truth of this matter. We've got to face it, which is that uh, a few dozen of those every year are actually born alive. Uh, and the way that then they are left to die. And the Attorney General's Department in South Australia has confirmed that that practice would take place under this legislation. It's one of the most barbaric things going on in our society at the moment that not many people know about. It's very, very sad indeed. So there are no checks, there are no balances, there's no consideration of the welfare of the child, there's no um, uh, humanity for the welfare of this child at this late stage in its gestation. Uh, and uh, and that's the problem. And uh, we, we are banding together with so many others to say, well, hang on a second, it seems reasonable to us. The age of viability for an unborn child is 23 weeks. At the very least, let's say it's a viable unborn child, then it can't be aborted unless, of course, as you mentioned, Lyle, it's very extreme circumstances like saving the life of the mother. And it seems to me that, you know, even that 23 weeks is kind of an arbitrary thing where we've just sort of figured, well, you know, let's put it there. I mean... You know, who are we to judge when a, when a, when a baby becomes a person? How do you even define that? Mm. Um, but that's probably a discussion for another day. The, the discussion here is the South Australian legislation that allows it to happen all the way through to birth. And it seems that that can take place more or less, you know, the day before the baby's born. If, uh, if I'm a woman who is pregnant, I can just make a decision, make a random decision. I've decided not to have this baby and so I've decided to kill it instead. And I know that's a, you know, we talk about abortion and termination, but the reality is that we are taking the life of a child. This is, how is, how is this not infanticide? I mean, we talk about um, people who will go to jail for multiple homicide when they murder a pregnant woman. Mm. How does how is this different? I mean, I'm not a lawyer. You're the lawyer here. I don't understand the difference between the two. Well, the real difference is as simple as whether or not the woman in question decides she wants the child. So if she wanted the child, then it's a person. If she didn't want the child, then it's not a person. That's sort of where we're headed. Uh, and uh, that, that, that that's not right. I mean, either the child is a person or it isn't. Um, and you I mean, Lyle, I totally agree with you. I'm completely pro-life. So I think that the unborn child is a person and needs to be protected as such full stop. Um, 23 weeks is the age of viability these days. If it's more than 23 weeks, it's pretty much guaranteed to live. So that's why they choose it. But yeah, I agree. There's, I mean, the heart beats at four weeks. And one of the most powerful comments I heard, um, from a New South Wales politician was just a simple line. He said, I can't vote for a law that stops a beating heart. Uh, because a heart beats at four weeks. Um, and that's what abortion does. And so you've got to take that very seriously. And we found out a lot of this stuff, um, you know, in the last 50 years or so. Uh, and there are people who will get very upset by this kind of revelation or get very angry at this kind of discussion. And, and sometimes it's because their life has been touched by abortion. Um, but, you know, just because we've done something, uh, we can be sorry about it. We can change our ways. We can say, I was ignorant. I was, I was wrong. I did the wrong thing. Yes. You know, we can, we can do that. And I think that that's what a lot of, that's what some people have to do and say, okay, we've reached, arrived at a point where, um, the fact that this act is, it's not just a clump of cells. It's not a meaningless act. It's a very serious thing. We now know and we need to face that. Uh, and that's why I think the younger generation tends to be much more pro-life than the older generation. 
uh, and you actually do see uh, what they call the pro-life generation coming through. Well, you have young people who have grown up with 3D ultrasounds, they've grown up with beautiful pictures of unborn children. They've also grown up in an age where they don't so much see the need for abortion because they say, well, we've got birth control and various other things. And so you see a younger generation that is more pro-life. And I think that's why you get these pro-life pushbacks more and more uh, around Australia, around the US, and indeed around the world. Uh, and so I think that's a great thing. I think it's a real, it's a human rights issue. Uh, and, you know, an unborn child is the most defenseless among us. It's the most needy among us. Uh, and to protect it, I think, is a very noble thing. So to get this right, if a woman takes the life of her child the day that it's born or the day before it's born, as you've said, it can even be the day that it's born, then yeah. that can be just signed off by two doctors and she goes home scot-free. If she does it the day after, she gets a life sentence. Well, here's the thing. I mean, uh, one of the things they are concerned about is the practice of partial birth abortion, which means that the child could be half born and then killed. Uh, which is one of the most barbarous things ever. It's terrible. Uh, and so you're right. It gets to the point where you say to yourself, well, what's going on here? <laughs> you know, uh, at what point can we, can we reasonably say, okay, you know, you're just killing someone. Um, and that's, of course, what this legislation bases us with. And you're right. Uh, what you do is you get the signature of two doctors, and that's not difficult. Um, they tend to put up these, uh, these, these uh, termination clinics, and you'll have two doctors there on staff. And they'll just go, sign, sign, yep, no worries, uh, and away it goes. It's really not a bar. Like I mentioned, in states like Victoria, you get hundreds every year where they have a similar, you know, quote-unquote limitation. It's not really a limitation. Uh, and what is the difference? That's a good question, Lyle. Um, I, I personally believe that there's pretty much no difference uh, in, in, in killing an infant that is born, you know, a day afterwards or two days afterwards versus on the day that it could be born. Um, very, very little difference indeed. That is a tiny little human being. And it's very, very tragic. And I think that's why South Australia is a small city uh, by Australian standards, a small small capital, I should say. Uh, and there's not much urban density around Adelaide. It is just Adelaide. And yet 5,000 people showed up to walk for life in the Adelaide CBD last weekend, which was incredible. Huge sea of white shirts. Uh, and this is how much people care. And I found that very, very encouraging. They had a tiny little pro-choice demonstration just this past weekend. Maybe it was 200 people, maybe not even that. Uh, and it shows that people don't like it. We've surveyed the community, 70% don't want late-term abortion. So there is actually quite a bit more awareness and concern about this than uh, perhaps some of us realise, which I found encouraging. Uh, and that's putting a lot of heat on the politicians to reconsider this whole late-term thing. Because uh, I think, as uh, you're rightly sort of alluding, it is... It's a really tragic human rights issue of our time. And I understand there's a number of uh, South Australian uh, politicians who are in marginal seats that could uh, lose their seats over this issue. Well, yes. I mean, there's a few things going on there. Um, there are some that are holding on to it by 1%, 2% onto their seats. And uh, the polling does show that uh, if, uh, if this issue were to be, if the public were to be reminded about the abortion issue very strongly, in the election campaign, it's highly likely that they could lose their seat. And so that's how it got them worried. Uh, but also there's been a good information campaign as well where some are not just uh, considering voting against this for reasons of uh, their security in the parliament, but also for just conscientious reasons. Uh, there are a lot of politicians who are now saying, oh, okay, this seems wrong. Uh, the practice here is so messy and uh, so obviously wrong that we can't vote for it. And 
It's interesting for the first time because this is what uh, Victoria, New South Wales, Queensland, Tassie and ACT have all gone down this abortion to birth route. Um, but for the first time, the awareness around this has got to the point where the pushback in South Australia is really bearing fruit. And we're sitting here scratching our head going, you know what, we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but we're pretty sure that the numbers on this are at least incredibly close. Uh, and actually that a late-term abortion could be blocked in South Australia when this comes to a vote. And uh, the government delayed the bill a couple of weeks ago, which usually is a sign that they're losing confidence in the numbers. Uh, so that's very exciting to see pushback to that extent in South Australia. And if we can get you know late-term abortion banned in one state, a fantastic starting point for other states. Mm, It is, absolutely. I want to come back to this issue of gender selection abortion. One of the things that that kind of does my head in is, you know, when we've seen this this kind of thing be passed through, say, in in Queensland, Victoria, wherever it might be, we see, you know, the feminist community just sort of getting out there and absolutely celebrating the fact that, you know, these laws have been passed through. But isn't gender selection abortion just a war on women? Uh, look, of course it is. Um, this is a tragic practice which takes place, and I forget the numbers, but somebody has actually done the numbers on how many, you know, quote-unquote missing girls there are in different countries around the world simply because they were aborted because they were girls, and it's, it's pretty astronomical. And I know of a couple of doctors who have had encounters with people who were seeking abortions on the basis of gender selection. It's a girl, I don't want it, I want it a boy. Um, and I think that that's just, goes against everything that feminists say that they stand for um, and must be taken seriously. But one of the strange things about the abortion issue is that the really, really, really um, sort of, I was going to say vicious proponents or the really ideological and committed proponents of abortion, there doesn't seem to be anything that they're prepared to acknowledge uh, is bad about abortion. It's like if they acknowledge one thing, then they have to accept other things and they just won't do it. And so we've seen in parliaments down the East Coast where politicians have tried, for example, to put up amendments to the legislation there to say, you know, while it was being debated, to say, well, at least let's not have gender selection abortion. At least let's make that a banned practice. And they won't even vote for that amendment. Uh, or they'll put up an amendment that says, well, at least, you know, in the several dozen cases every year in each state where a child is born alive as a result of abortion and then simply left to die, let's at least make that illegal. Surely that's, you know... That's up there with the ancient Romans, leaving their babies out on the rubbish test. You know, you can't do that. Uh, and, and even that amendment has failed. And to see these amendments fail is quite sickening and sad. Um, but there is a really, really strong pro-abortion sort of ideological edge in the political community that simply won't accept that there is anything wrong whatsoever with abortion to birth. And that's sort of what you're fighting. It's an, it's an ideologism. It's a it's an incredible zeal uh, in favour of these things because I guess people have put their lives into it and have come to believe it so powerfully they can't accept that it's got problems. So you're fighting a bit of energy uh, and that's why um, we see these terrible things. But as I said, South Australia leading the way with uh, you know the average person in the community, it seems, just not liking this and, and not liking it for good reasons. And that's having a political impact. So the South Australians that have been calling their MPs that have been taking action, I mean, it blows me away to see what they've been achieving. And uh, we are very hopeful and very prayerful about this. And debate on this is set to start, I believe, uh, tomorrow. Is that right? 
Uh, that is probably right. I haven't seen the notice paper this week yet. It's sort of early on a Monday morning, uh, and I'm not sure that it's out actually. But we were we are expecting that it'll come back on the agenda this week, if not this week, then the first week of March. Um, it was supposed to be a couple of weeks ago, but uh, they decided not to proceed with it. I think that's because they were getting a bit shaky on their numbers. And we're hopeful that, uh, and, and we pray for this, and anyone who hasn't contacted their MP, give them a call or send them an email to say, hey, could you please oppose late-term abortion? And uh, when the debate happens, we are hopeful that that is exactly what will happen. And we're also hopeful that it's the first state of several. Martin Isles, uh, thank you so much for joining us here on Faith FM this morning. We uh, appreciate what you've got to say. We could talk about it for... I guess quite a bit longer, but unfortunately we are out of time and we're going to have to continue on. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.